what you have here is great. And also, if you could also include, I don't know, checking the delivery address on this page, that would be so useful to me all in one place. But the key is showing them something that is already working, that is already functional, and then saying, you know, what do you feel when you see this? Or what do you experience when you see this, both in the positive and in the negative? Yo, this is Christian D. Evans with Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in and listening to our amazing podcast. This is where we reveal the top 1% of business concepts and systems and processes to scale eight and nine figure businesses. We interview top level eight and nine figure CEOs, business owners, and amazing TEDx speakers like David Meltzer. We got Nick Cavuto, Pascal Bachman, and so many others. And if you feel like this resonates with you, please share this with your friend, your family, and make sure you impact them as well because we're trying to spread the message on those that do not know how to scale eight, nine figure businesses and talking higher level business concepts. So guys, remember, enjoy the episode and be uncommon if you can. Cheers. Thank you so much for tuning into Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. I'm your host, Christian D. Evans. Our next guest is a former executive with a background in leadership business, and product development. She's a former nonprofit board member, having served on the board of directors for both Scrum Alliance and Angile Denver. She was privileged to present at the 2020 World Business and Executive Coach Summit and at 2021 Women Tech Summit and has been featured in Business Coaching, Business Agility, Emergence, and Authority Magazines. She's a keynote speaker, leadership coach, and employee experience designer. She is host of the Wild Hearts at Work podcast, redefining our relationship with work through stories and conversations. Please welcome CEO of Melissa Boggs Consulting, Melissa Boggs. How are you doing today, Melissa? Hi, Christian. I am well. Really excited to be here. Hey, I'm really excited about it as well because you have just immense, immense um, just experience. And what is so fun about this is you actually told me right before we jumped on that you have such incredible experience that you literally cannot even take on so many, any more clients because <laughs> you you are just, uh, you're, you're so skilled uh, at, at what you do. And I think, first of all, congratulations on that, to be in that spot. Uh, a lot of people always like, they, they don't actually perform results so so magnificently that they're always trying to hustle. And what's so beautiful is you just attract the right people and you just can't even take on more clients. Uh, but before we dive into that, I'd love to ask, you know, what, what were some skills that you've acquired over the many, many years that that you, you had to learn from, um, you know, a failure or a few failures? Sure. Oh, goodness. I mean, the very first thing that popped to mind when you said that was such a generic answer, but honestly, it's true, which is um, I've really honed my listening skills over the years. And that's not an easy thing to do. I mean, I think often, you know, we're listening, what is the phrase? We're listening to uh, respond rather than to understand. But in many of the roles that I've had, I mean, coaching roles in particular, but even as the co-CEO of Scrum Alliance, I really had to learn how to listen to what was going on, not just with the individual, but the system as a whole and the organization as a whole. And so I would say the number one thing that I have really refined is my ability to listen. So with that being said, then how did you come to grips with that? Was it um, a big striking failure that you realize, okay, I've got to learn and I got to acquire this skill. And secondly, what, what did that look like to acquire that skill? Was it over a period of time? Did you have a mentor? Did you educate yourself? 
uh, what, what were the things that you had to analyze about yourself? Why do I keep, you know, being too, too uh, audacious, whatever it may be? I'm just curious, what, what did that look like? Sure. You know, I think the biggest thing that comes to mind is that when I first stepped into my role at Scrum Alliance as co-CEO, I was really interested in introducing self-management, self-organization, because this is something I had done as a coach for many years. Um, and for those who are not familiar with Scrum Alliance, just very quickly, it's a, a nonprofit association for people who are interested in both Scrum and agile ways of working, which focus on self-management and self-organization. Uh, among many other things. But, you know, the idea that we would introduce that for the actual company itself that is introducing it to the world was pretty important. Where I fell on my face, frankly, is I did that too quickly and too audaciously. <laughs> and the thing about self-organization is that many of us are not taught through school, through college, and through our work experience to make the types of the decisions that self-organization requires. And what I mean by that is most of us are in these very hierarchical systems where, you know, the big boss makes a decision, rolls it down to the VP, rolls it down to the director, and eventually it gets to you and you're expected to just sort of do what you're told. And, you know, we like to dress it up more than that, but often that's what happens in an organization. When we are truly trying to introduce self-organization, we're trusting that the people closest to the work actually have the most information about the work and therefore are the most equipped to make the decision. And that is true in terms of the amount of information that they might have, but it doesn't mean that previously they've been in a position to make those types of decisions before. And so when I was introducing this, to the organization and saying, okay, you know, we've built these really strong teams. Now you all are gonna, you know, you're gonna make decisions that you've never made before. I think there's a little bit of hubris involved and maybe a little bit of savior complex involved for myself. I was like, I'm letting you make the decisions. Aren't you so happy and excited? And while I think that they trusted my intent, a lot of them were like, whoa, like, what do you mean? Because with decision-making comes accountability. And I don't know if I have everything I need to make these decisions, and now I'm going to be accountable for them. So in the first few months of that, um, I think I was so focused on the savior complex and so focused on my own hubris that it took me a little while to hear them saying that, to actually hear them saying, you know, it's not that we're afraid to make the decision just because we're scared. You know, they were telling me in different ways repeatedly, we don't have the reports that you had, we don't have the, um, you know, sort of experience and decision making that you have, you can't just hand us this, you know, load and expect us to run with it. And so there was a point a few months into my tenure there, that I sort of took a hard look at that and went, Oh, I am not setting them up to succeed. And that's terrible because that's the only thing I want in the world. I mean, that's why I did this was because I thought that's what would help them to succeed. And so then I really sort of did a, a round robin of listening again. And, you know, I can't say I ever got it perfect, but I definitely got a lot better at understanding, okay, what do you need? What would be helpful? Should we partner on this decision first? And then you make the next one. Or, 
you need these reports that I didn't even realize I was the only one who had access to, you know, that type of thing, um, which has sort of led me to like, when I do coach leaders in similar situations, we need to focus on two things, context. What context did you have to make these decisions yourself? How can you give that context to the people that you're asking to self-organize and then boundaries? Um, we often as leaders say, yeah, you make the decision. And then as soon as they do, we change it, back out of it, reverse it. And that's the worst thing that you can do. That's so disempowering and so deflating. And so when, when you give boundaries to your employees, you have to be okay with whatever happens inside of those boundaries. You cannot reverse it, you cannot back it out or they will not make another decision for a very long time because why would you wanna do that? So yeah, I definitely fell on my face in that area and I learned a lot. So with that, and, and I appreciate you going into that a little bit, what kind of boundaries would you say are healthy where it facilitates that right action and say, hey, you know what? Yeah, we failed. I didn't give you the ownership, whatever it may be, but obviously developing, you know, learning from that experience and then building those like foundational blocks, if you will. I mean, it definitely depends on, you know, what type of decision that you're making. I think it's, I think the thing to focus on when creating boundaries is, again, what context do they have? And with that context, what is a safe place for them to start with this type of decision making? So um, I'll give an example that's just really simple. As a leader, here's all the information you need. I am gonna be okay with any decision you make between one and four. And like, I really have to check myself, right? Like, can I be okay with anything that might possibly happen between one and four? And then if there's more that needs to be decided, then we'll take what you did and I will build upon it, but I'm okay with anything between one and four. Next time, hopefully I'm able to say, I'm okay with anything between one and six. This last decision you made was great, or maybe it wasn't, but we talked about it, we worked through it, and I'm confident now that like you have what you need. I'm okay between one and six. And each time you can sort of like expand the boundaries to give people more creative license or freedom in that decision making. But the most important thing, honestly, is that whatever the situation is, you make sure that they have what they need, and then whatever they decide even if it's not what you would have decided, that you make sure that you would be okay with it. And what were some lessons that you learned from that? Because I know that's not so easy sometimes because you're sitting there, you want to take ownership, you want to go out there, you know what needs to be done. And then having like a leader like yourself that had to um, you know, endure that. Well, I mean, naturally, again, before I was in this position as a leader, I was a coach. And so the funny thing is I've been coaching leaders to do this quite honestly, before I really had to do it myself at the same level, like, you know, in prior, prior to coaching and jobs, maybe I was a director and that's fine. Like it's actually a little bit easier to let go of some power as a director sometimes than it is as a CEO when you're responsible for the entire company. Um, and so I think the thing that I learned was that, you know, in that role, especially if you were the 
quote unquote highest level in the company. You're the CEO or the COO. Um, there's not actually as much power as you think, first of all. Um, everybody has a boss, even the CEO. So for me, I was responsible to the board of directors. And there were some things that I did not have control over. So therefore, I couldn't give anyone else control of them either. <laughs> um, and then two, you are beholden to everyone in the company. And if you think that CEOs, I mean, I guess some do, just make decisions and you know don't care what anyone thinks, I think most don't. And so imagine being in a role where you're basically in the middle. And I'm not trying to say like, what was me? Like they are paid very well to be in the middle, but between either the board of directors or the, you know, the stakeholders, whatever their accountability might be, but also they're accountable to the people of the organization. And so I think the thing that I learned the most from that was actually just an incredible amount of empathy all around, um, which has actually changed my work quite a bit. Um, what I focus on with my clients is not fixing the employees or fixing the CEO, but rather sort of mending or healing the relationship between them through this employee experience. Well, what's interesting is you actually had an amazing talk here uh, on your website here, melissaboggspeaks.com. And in this talk, she, uh, you will describe the five things that employees need to increase their own engagement. And the one thing that modern leaders must do to enable the type of engagement that marries employee and client needs. And what I found so interesting, and I know this is kind of a slight pivot, but it's also very structurally this very similar. But I think mm -hmm. it's, it, it ties in because what you're saying there, um, well, actually, go ahead. I'd love for you to just kind of unpack that for us, for our audience. Ooh, are you asking me to give away the lead here? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, so I have a model that I talk about in that keynote, um, the five things. And it's essentially, if, if you remember like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's this Melissa's quote unquote hierarchy of needs that I've developed specifically as it relates to the modern organization and employee experience. So Maslow's is a pyramid, mine is also a pyramid. Um, it starts at the bottom with clarity. Everyone needs clarity, right? Um, clarity is perhaps one of the more accessible things for most leaders to provide. I'm not saying it's easy, but it doesn't require you to give up a lot of power. <laughs> it doesn't require you to change your mindset necessarily, just providing people with clarity and the next one being context. Um, as you climb the pyramid, things become perhaps a little more difficult to do, but also more powerful. So clarity is pretty easy. Context is a little bit easier. You might have some restrictions in terms of what you can and cannot share with your organization, but you can generally provide context. Um, then we get to craft. Building your organization in a way that people can really focus on their craft. and their goals are married to the goals of the organization, but you're paying attention to the people in the org and, and what skills they are trying to build and trying to really leverage those for the benefit of the org and the employee. Again, becomes a little harder to do, uh, a little less accessible 
But if you can access that, then it's really powerful for, again, the org and the employee. Then we get into the next one, which is choice. This comes down to things like folks having the ability to design their own role or design the work that they do inside the org, and they have choice in that. Again, asking them to marry those things to the goals of the org, but giving them a whole lot of choice. This becomes a lot harder, right? This is something that not every leader is willing to do because it requires decentralizing some power. It requires a lot of trust in the people in your org. But when you can accept, access that, it becomes really powerful and you start to really retain employees because when employees have choice, you know, why would they go somewhere else? And then at the very tip of the pyramid, the highest one being co-creation, which is kind of like choice on steroids, <laughs> because this is truly like getting into the democratization of the workplace. We as a company are going to create what this organization is. The, the biggest example I have of this is Zappos. Um, who started with a framework called Holacracy, but have actually grown far beyond that to where basically anyone in the company can propose like a new line of product. Like it's, it's absolutely amazing, but they have to be able to back it up, right? And they have to be able to support it. They have to create a coalition around it. Um, there's more about this in their book, The Power of Wow, but it is mind-blowing what they have been able to do with co-creation in the Zappos organization. And so those are the five elements. Again, some of them are pretty easy to access, um, but the further you get, uh, the less conventional it is. And yet, I think what we are going to see in these coming years after the pandemic is that these things are going to be more and more required that we employees are no longer going to accept just showing up and being told what to do. So if you could, just with choice and co-creation, maybe share another testimonial, maybe another like a client of yours that you've worked with that you were able to kind of unleash that power and kind of what results. So just kind of help me understand how you were able to build that foundation to facilitate that within that organization. Like you said, it, it requires certain base, baselines before it gets there. Uh, so if you could walk us through that, maybe with a client of yours that you work with. Actually, I'll do better. And I'll, I'll give you the example of when I was actually the leader, because it's a lot, it's easy to talk about this as the coach from the outside, because it's easy to say, oh, I'll just do this. Meh, easy, right? Um, it was a lot harder when I was the CEO. <laughs> so. Um, at Scrum Alliance, over time, once we had developed some of the skills that we were talking about earlier in terms of decision making, um, we completely restructured the company. And what we ended up with were seven persona-based cross-functional teams. We completely did away with departments and we did not have managers. So each team had a particular segment of our community because again, we were an association. so we were member-based service. So each team had a section of or segment of the community that they were responsible for. And where the co-creation and the choice came in was our message to them was 
your job is to understand this persona and what they need. And our existing products, um, we offered certifications, are only one way to satisfy that need. Your job is not to just pitch products and sell products. Your job is to understand what they need and to meet that need in whatever way that your team deems appropriate, powerful, whatever. So we continue to offer certifications. However, these teams came up with some incredibly creative ways of serving their communities and understanding that each of those different personas or segments of the community had different needs. Um, and they would sometimes partner with one another, like, oh yeah, our segment needs that too. You know, let's both do it. But they had a lot of choice. And the creative things that they came up with are not things that my partner and I would have come up with on our own, period. Like, because they spent um, spent a credible amount of time with customers. So they ended up um, spinning up like a Slack instance where they could have, they had what they called, um, oh gosh, the name is escaping me right now, but basically like community groups for each segment that they would put things in front of customers or members and say, what do you think about this? Would you use this before they even built it? Um, as they were building things every two weeks, they would put it in front of customers or members and say, you know, are we going in the right direction? But giving them that level, like, again, we gave them boundaries. This is your persona. This is your community segment. Um, here's, you know, like each team had a budget so that they weren't each spending millions of dollars. Those were all part of the boundaries and the context that we created for them. But once those things were in place, they had choice. And, and they even within the team, because it was a cross-functional team, and to define that really quickly, each team had software development, marketing, um, customer support, like the folks who actually took tickets from our customers because they could give a voice to the customer about what they were struggling with. Um, sorry, I'm blanking. Oh, education, because we were definitely like an education-based organization. So they, each team, there were no departments, each team had representatives, had those voices at the table about what this community needed. And with that, in the context and the boundaries that we created, they had such a powerful impact on each of those segments. And, and again, they were all different. Like um, part of the way that our personas were divided was by sort of the advanced knowledge of the person in that community. So someone who had been doing this work for 15 years had very different needs than someone who had just joined us. And so that's how sort of they were segmented out. Um, and yeah, that was, and it, yeah, it was definitely hard because things are going on in your organization or in my organization that I didn't have complete control over. Um, but we created feedback loops so that my partner and I had the ability to kind of hear what was going on and, um, you know, providing the additional context if we thought it was missing, but they did amazing work. So let me ask you this, because this is what I find so interesting, is I love what you mentioned there. However, though, how do you get the buy-in of those individuals? Now let me, like, obviously, let's say, for example, CEO starts implementing this. Naturally, if you haven't been doing it for 15 years or maybe even five years or however long that company is, it's kind of new. And so naturally, it may take a while 
one, to prioritize and make sure the leader prioritizes it for the employees to make sure they put in their schedule to obviously facilitate that creative aspect behind it. Um, but also, does it take almost like, hey, let's do it once. Okay, we maybe got some engagement and then let's do it another time, three months down, like every quarter. And then obviously you get a little bit warmer, warmer uh, employees because they're more familiar with it. They understand it. And then now they understand, oh, this is what the leader wants. Uh, just so our audience can understand there's that like lifetime trajectory. So it allows people to understand, hey, don't expect this amazing, if you haven't been doing it, it's totally new anticipate that but obviously don't give up on it because obviously um like you mentioned the results uh, speak for themselves is that correct or i'd like to get your feedback on that i've definitely seen it done multiple ways um so it is very common in any sort of transformation for a leader to say i'm going to do this with one team first and i totally support that strategy so let's take one team um make sure they have what they need to deliver you know in terms of skills and knowledge everything they need and let's give them the context and the boundaries and let them start making a difference and i mean the advantage to that certainly is that when they start to make a difference then you have other teams that are going "Ooh, wait we want to get to do that <laughs> rather than oh this is very fearful for everyone all at one time right because fear is contagious and so you know you might have some fear in that one team but it's sort of contained to that one team you support them you probably have a little bit more bandwidth if you're only doing that one team first to provide them the psychological safety and whatnot um and once that one team has sort of piqued the interest of everyone else then it becomes like oh well we're gonna do these two teams next. We'll get to you, we promise. You know, there's just like, there becomes this like um, interest, like when, this is a silly analogy, but it is so funny. My son is really into slime right now, right? He's 12 and his favorite slime company is only restocking quote unquote on Fridays. And now people are like clamoring on Fridays. I feel like you can create that same energy. Um, but there is also what we did, which was this whole kind of big bang, um, doing it all at once. And there were reasons for that. There's a strategy to that. Um, our restructure had a lot to do with that. You couldn't just restructure and then only work with one team and let the rest of them sit there and languish. So there was reasons for it. It did take an incredible amount of care and support. And to your point, um, kind of taking baby steps as a whole company. Now, the company was at most, I think at our biggest was 60 people. So I'm not claiming that this is a 20,000 person company. Um, I don't see how you do a big bang with a super huge company. Although I will say Zappos did. Um, but, you know, you can either kind of start with one and let the energy spread, or you can go all at the same time if, if you can. I will say as a leader, my entire focus was on supporting and creating safety for these teams in, in those early months. So I couldn't really be focusing on a whole lot else. I mean, luckily we had, we had a strategy, we knew what we wanted to do for the year, and I could really just focus on supporting them to get us there. 
Gotcha. Gotcha. And that makes perfect sense. And I really appreciate you just unpacking that a little bit and bringing that clarity. Uh, because what I find so interesting is like you were just talking about is the, you know, the right trajectory when they start uh, definitely a CEO, when they implement a system and a process, like you mentioned, and having the understanding that it may take a while, but the results speak for themselves, like you were just saying. Now, um, you did mention something that I really want to kind of emphasize a little bit. You know, you were talking about how Zappos was able to establish this and how by adding this kind of this, 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 this cadence, if you will, allowed massive growth. Now, if you could maybe take a few of your clients or maybe even your own, um, what have you found that were like produced amazing results from this, this, um, this, this cadence, if you will, this, this environment of creation and co-creation? Sure. So my background, um, I don't fully do this work 100% anymore, but my background is in agile software. Uh, excuse me, agile software development. And in agile ways of working, we have this concept of both iterative and incremental work. So I'm gonna break those down a little bit because they're different and they also often are conflated. So iterative is the cadence that you're talking about. Iterative is, you know, every, for a lot of teams, it's every two weeks, we're gonna check in. I sort of mentioned that with the, the agile teams at Scrum Alliance. Um, so every two weeks, we're gonna check in. That's iterative, that's working in iterations. But the incremental piece is different. Incremental is building something, imagine that like sort of a Lego block at a time, but each of those Lego blocks in and of itself has value, right? So instead of doing a project plan, let's just use software as an example, that is three years long. I, and I'm gonna do like, I'm gonna do discovery and requirements for a year, and then I'm gonna do actual code writing for a year and then I'm going to do you know a year of QA and testing which is how we used to do things you would get to the end of that year and you could have something that no one wanted that like you built this whole thing and like it might have been perfect quote unquote but the entire world had moved so fast that no one cares about what you built anymore and that is where this idea of incremental building came which is that in that two week sprint, as we call it, or maybe it's four weeks, we are actually building something that in and of itself is valuable. And I'll get to my clients in a minute, I promise. But so one example, there's a cartoon out there that you can kind of Google if you look for like minimum viable product is we're not building the wheels of a car and then the axle and then the body and then putting bells and whistles on it. Rather, we're building a skateboard. A skateboard will get you from A to B, right? Not happily. It's raining, you know, like no one wants the skateboard, but in and of itself, it does have value. It will get you from A to B. Once you've used the skateboard, we recognize that yes, we're on the right track, so we make it a scooter. Now it has handles, it's a little easier to work with. Um, and again, you're not perfectly happy, but you're getting value from it. You're getting from A to B. Then, then we build you a motorcycle and so forth, right? All the way to a car. But what if at the scooter you said, no, actually A to B is on the water. Why would I want a scooter? But we never talked about that before. Oh, you actually need a boat. <laughs> so we're gonna use a sailboat to start with, you know? And so where I have seen this be really powerful with clients 
is the ability to put your work in front of your actual customers and ask them, am I going in the right direction? Um, I have seen over the last 14 years <laughs> of being in agile ways of working, um, I definitely have seen clients put their work in front of their customers and their customers go, that's a really nice idea, but I actually wouldn't use it like that in my everyday life, right? Like that doesn't fit how I work. And then the client or the customer has a, a opportunity to explain, and then you can course correct. And so we see this in software all the time. Um, at Scrum Alliance, we actually had a, a particular program that we were thinking about rolling out. And we did the same thing. I mean, it doesn't have to be software. Like we kind of built a sketch of what this might look like and put it in front of some members. And they were like, mm, I wouldn't attend that actually. And here's why. And if we had built that out, it would have been a lot of money to build out and then not have people attend it, um, which obviously would have been terrible. And so, yeah, that cadence that you're talking about is more than just like checking in every two weeks. It's actually like, let's, let's slice our work into pieces of value that can actually create real feedback loops that we can use uh, to either course correct or keep going down the right path. Brilliant, just really brilliant. <laughs> and the reason why I think this is so brilliant is because just like you were saying, you just built a very simple infrastructure for your client, right? And really being able to help you facilitate that longer, longer trajectory. Um, now with that, let's kind of unpack that a little bit further. Now, when you're saying, you know, you're able to implement these things for your clients, okay? Um, at, what, at what point do you feel like is the best optimal time for those? And what I mean by that is like being able to have this like kind of Zappos kind of feel. We got that synergy, that energy, but also you you have that buy-in and, and as well as, you know, with the sales cycles. Like, for example, I've had a lot of individuals where I would read and listen to a lot of their sales calls, right? And consume that. And then from there, you're able to dial in, okay, what are their pains, their frustrations? What are their offers? And you dial in that offer on the front end and the back end, and you structure it just for what the client really wants. But what I found a lot of times is you take a lot of this data, and sometimes a lot of people, one, they don't know what questions to ask your current clients. And two, with the data, how do I structure and how do I tell the leadership to structure it according to the data? Because like you were saying at the beginning, the, the, the people on the front, front line, they're the closest to the customer and they're experiencing it. Sometimes the leadership, they're just getting this data. So how do you, how do you share that with the, the leadership and saying, hey, we see these trends happening. They may or may not want this because ABC, because what this what the data is showing. So can you reframe your question for me? Because I heard a couple of different questions, actually. And I can't yeah, wait to unpack all of them. <laughs> yeah, two, two main questions. One, what kind of questions should you be asking to facilitate the right engagement, right data for, for building out like you were just saying? Like, okay, hey, um, you, you put out beta test, get feedback very quickly, a loop, 
collapse timeframes and then push out that thing again, right? Just getting feedback, right? Um, but I always found, hey, what kind of features do you want? There are certain questions that, you, that facilitate a better response to get better data. So it's not just like overarching questions. Um, like one of the things I've heard of is not just say, hey, what would you suggest? Have like four or five suggestions in there. What would be better? Because then people tend, one, you get a better response, right? Because people are so busy. And two, you know, you just get like better data as well. So that's what I was just curious on. Like when you're, when you're building that software, like SaaS company, right? And you have those iterations very quickly. And obviously you want to get response from your customer very quickly, collapsing that time frame. What are some optimal questions do you ask them to be able to get like the better, better response to like adjust your product and your offer faster? Yeah, I love that question. So um, in the Scrum framework, which I specialize in, um, we have what we call sprint reviews every two weeks and we bring the customers actually into the conversation. So I emphasize this because it's not a survey that we're sending. It's not abstract. It's come to our you know, Zoom call most of the time and let us actually demonstrate what this does. Um, and I'll go remind me after this, I want to talk about how you get customers in the door every two weeks, because that in itself is a skill, but we bring them to the table. We show them the software and, um, in our case, in, in a scrum framework, we have a role that is the product owner and their whole job is to understand what the customer wants and prioritize that value. And. I often coach them to ask questions like, so what did you expect to see that you did not see? What problem are you looking to solve that is not solved by what you see here or what we demonstrated for you? But also on the flip side to like amplify the good stuff, what delighted you on this page? And that is like such a cheesy word, but it actually works because it really does like spark something in people. And they're like, they might say, nothing on this page delighted me. Nothing that you showed me delighted me. But they might say, oh my goodness, just moving that button from the left to the right is so much easier on my wrist because I am clicking that button. You know, I think about people who are doing like very repetitive things. Like if you don't want to like move all over, right? Um, but this isn't just about like user experience either. Um, there may be entire like functions or things that people wouldn't have thought to say to you that they wanted to do, right? But when they see what you already have, it's sort of it's sort of like a yes and. Yes, what you have here is great. And also, if you could also include, I don't know, checking the delivery address on this page, that would be so useful to me all in one place. But the key is showing them something that is already working, that is already functional, and then saying, you know, what do you feel when you see this? Or what do you experience when you see this, both in the positive and in the negative, um, gets you to that feedback that you're looking for. People already have expectations. And so what I always tell teams, it's like, it's a little nerve wracking to bring customers in to your product really early but I promise you, your customers already have expectations. Would you rather know what those are now or six months from now? And find out that you spent all this time building something that was not gonna be useful for them. 
And I really appreciate you sharing this and just being able to kind of give the cheat sheet, if you will, of the right questions to ask. Because one of the things, again, I just I want to emphasize uh, what Melissa is talking about to the audience here, because see, so many times, you know, I've seen business owners and you're talking even multi-billion dollar companies create this amazing product uh, and the client really doesn't want it, honestly. And it just Kapoos. And I think the one of the best failures would be Amazon and the Fire Fire Phone. Now, oh, they obviously yeah. took the Fire Phone and obviously it's transferred into Alexa. And now that becomes a, a beautiful another product. And that was a good you know pivot. However, that, that was a really good example of how they really structured. They spent all this millions, hundreds of millions of dollars investing into something. And so even the biggest companies also fail at this. And like you said, it's just able to do those small little incremental things that make the biggest difference right you're gathering the right data. Now, I do like what you're saying here, Melissa, because definitely a lot of software, they're B2B, okay? And business to business, they're always busy, quote unquote, right? And we don't have time to you know, show up to trainings or education or Zoom meetings, right? And unless they are required in our, in our uh, calendar. Now, you, you wanted me to loop back around and I'd love to get your insight. How do you get people to show up and be informed with this? So... First of all, um, it's more than being informed. They have to feel like the feedback that they are giving you is actually making a difference. Now, that doesn't mean that you do everything that everyone says in every one of these meetings, but um, when they feel invested is one thing. But the thing that was really effective for us at Scrum Alliance, and I've seen it with uh, at least one other client, is especially when you are gonna be doing this every two weeks or every four weeks, you can't expect the same people to show up. And so what we did was that each of those teams that I told you about, the persona teams, they had a, uh, I think we called them customer, customer advisory teams that were consisted of probably 25 to 30 people actually. But we only expected maybe five or six to show up. But, and it wasn't always the same five or six. So, if you have 30 people who, in our case, were under NDA, who um, we could offer them like little rewards, like, um, I'll be honest, I don't remember exactly what we offered them, but things like discounts or um, entrance to uh, conferences, things like that, like things that you can offer them very small, but for giving of their time and of their effort to show up. Um, but if you have a group of say 30, and five or six show up every time. Some of them will be the same, some of them will be different, but you're likely to catch some of them each time. Like, I don't think we ever had a sprint review where no one showed up. Um, the thing that the teams did that I didn't suggest that they just sort of uh, organically came up with is they created this Slack instance where each of those customer advisory teams had their own channel. And so, they started, the customers started to talk to one another. Like, I can't make this sprint review, but can you all that do make it kind of share, you know, what you saw? And so you started to see this like very um, organic and sort of slow investment that they were making, not just in our team, but in one another. And they started to make connections and relationships, which we definitely didn't necessarily plan for, but was cool. Um, and also they would just like give feedback in the Slack channel. So I had one team whose primary uh, members were 
actually CEOs and executives. And they recognized that it was really hard and they were probably not gonna get those folks on the phone every two weeks. But they did find that if they shared things like a video of demonstration on the Slack channel, that some of those folks would actually respond on Slack. You know, even if it wasn't real time, which we preferred, we were still getting feedback. They still felt invested. And then the byproduct of all of that is when folks feel that invested, when that product is actually released, whether it's in its MVP form or like, you know, in its full form, they had a part of it. So they become your champions. They're, they're telling their other friends about it because they're like, yeah, this really cool product came out. I actually got to help. I gave some opinions. People like to give opinions and people like to tell other people that they gave opinions. So, you know, they, they become your champions out in the world, which in itself is a powerful byproduct. And you're exactly right. Everybody loves and it has an opinion, you know, <laughs> but yes. you're, you're, um, you're, I love that. And I really appreciate unpacking that because one of the things I found is definitely, it is very difficult to get B2B. However, you have to use your creativity a little bit, different offers, different structures, and depending upon what motivates them, some motivate more toward money and like saving money. Some motivate toward more of like, Hey, you know, you do X, Y, Z and you'll get, you know, an extra service or something like that. So just depending upon what that is, but at the end of the day, it's, it's just by pushing out the word. Uh, and I just think that's really awesome. Now, Melissa, as I mentioned uh, to our audience, before we jumped on, I know you're not taking on any more clients. However, though, you are doing something very special and you're really focused on. And, uh, you know, I'd love for you to just share that with our audience as well. Yeah, thank you. Um, so this message of self-management and self-organization and, and more than that, like the democratization of the workplace, I think is especially timely right now people evaluated their priorities in this pandemic. When we came, we're still in it, but you know, as we're easing out of the pandemic and we hear about things like the great resignation, the great reshuffle, it's because employees have recognized their value. Um, and for a very long time, maybe individually, we knew that we were valuable, but now we recognize that like, as groups of people, we are valuable and we actually have some power and that our employers need us. And so, you know, the work that I do in coaching is working with those leaders to create places that people want to be, that they feel valuable, they have power, they can make decisions. And so I want to continue to spread that message through speaking. So I do keynote speaking, I do workshops, um, I speak at both conferences and at companies um, who are, trying to make this shift themselves and want their employees to understand better as well as their leaders. And so, yeah, I'm really focused on the speaking side of my business right now. I think there's a TED talk coming in the future, not there yet, but, um, but yes, that's what I'm, I'm offering now in addition to the coaching that I do. Awesome. And if they do know anybody or obviously would like for you to speak, um, how can they reach out to you, Melissa? The best way is uh, through my website, melissaboggs.com. Um, if you go there first and you go like forward slash speaking, you can see the keynote topics that I offer. Um, my bio is there. You can learn a little bit more about what I speak on. Um, so I would suggest going there first. And then my email address is simply melissa at melissaboggs.com. Pretty simple. 
Awesome, guys. And those links will be in the description below as well. And then also her email so you can reach out to her. Uh, Melissa, again, I just appreciate the immense value that you brought today. Just talking about, you know, your your immense knowledge from, you know, uh, running co-CEO to obviously building an incredible and helping incredible agencies and, and, and businesses really be able to really dial this in. Um, and it's just unpacking this, uh, really helping us understand the data and really gather, gather the right data as well uh, through just user experience client experience. And so um, before we let you go, though, um, guys, those links will be in the description below. But uh, is there any last words of wisdom that you'd like to share with our audience before we let you go, Melissa? Words of wisdom? Oh, my goodness. Um, I just really encourage leaders to think about uh, what I said a few minutes ago, that we are in a different time now, that the things that worked for us in the past uh, are no longer going to work now. Um, we are seeing employees who left at the beginning of the great resignation that are actually leaving a second company now. Like we have standards that perhaps weren't there before. And if your organizational values don't align with an individual's values, you may not keep them for very long. And that my friends, Melissa Boggs, guys, that is Journey with Christian Davis podcast. Until next time, remember, be uncommon if you can. Yo, this is Christian D. Evans, Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. We thank you so much for listening to this amazing episode. If you feel and you know that this was valuable to you, please show some love to our amazing guest by liking this, by commenting on this, by making sure that you do a nice five-star review and just show some love to our guest. That'd be really awesome. Also, make sure you share this with a friend, a family, a colleague, someone that you believe would bring value to their life right now. Uh, and guys, we just want to say thank you again for just being part of our community. If you want to have more resources, don't be afraid. Go to christiandevans.com. You can actually schedule a phone call with me or you can send me an email at christian.evans at beuncommonifyoucan.com. That's christian.evans at beuncommonifyoucan.com. Always love to hear some feedback and let me know what is the number one or two things that you are struggling in your business and your life and we'll make sure we have those conversations. Guys, that is Journey with Christian Davis podcast. And until next time, remember, be uncommon if you can. Cheers.